This is a Library Channel program from the UC San Diego Library. Visit us at www.uctv.tv slash library channel for interviews, author talks, and other programs that will inspire you to read, write, think, and dream. Good evening, everyone. I'm Tammy Deary, the Associate University Librarian for Enterprise Services, and I want to welcome you to the Geisel Library for tonight's event, Correcting the Course on Climate Change Negotiations, The Road from Paris, COP21. We'll be holding a number of climate change talks and events at the library this year, and for a very good reason. Many of us here feel that this set of issues presents the most serious challenges facing the world today. Climate change is sort of like a hydra head with many tentacle heads reaching out to create and exacerbate a broad range of critical problems. Drought, flooding, famine, epidemics, just to name a few. We're fortunate at UCSD to have a very impressive critical mass of experts on global warming and climate change issues. Maybe this is not surprising, given the science of global warming was first identified and monitored and examined by faculty members at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. In addition to our physical and biological scientists, however, we are also blessed to have the nation's top social scientist, David Victor, on the faculty at the university's School of Global Policy and Strategy. Professor Victor's research has made it clear that while science is central to understanding the problems, if the policy framework and the process are not well considered, we will not be successful. Professor Victor, a professor of international relations at UC San Diego's School of Global Policy and Strategy, um, also known as GPS, was a party to the COP21 held in Paris in December. He has been observing and studying the public policy apparatus for international climate change negotiations since the the late 1980s when he was a graduate student at MIT. In his book, Global Warming Gridlock, Professor Victor made a very strong case for a radical rethinking of global warming policy, which he said was needed in order to make international law more effective and bringing about international compacts to reduce global emissions. Fortunately, international policymakers got the message at the the bottom-up approach that he advocated, which was adopted and it produced an international agreement in Paris, which includes both short- and long-term targets for reducing emissions worldwide. An agreement far from perfect, but one that was more productive than any other climate negotiation in the last two decades. Professor Victor joined the faculty at UC San Diego's School of Global Policy and Strategy in 2009, and he serves as the co-director for the school's Laboratory on International Law and Regulations. He previously served as the director of the Program on Energy and Sustainable Development at Stanford, where he was a professor at the Stanford Law School, and he taught also there taught energy and environmental law. He received a Ph.D. in political science from MIT, a B.A. in History and Science from Harvard University. In addition to David Victor, we'll be hearing from Shaila Ragamov and Joaquin Vallejo, graduate students at the School of Global Policy and Strategy, both who accompanied Professor Victor to Paris and supported the university's Scripps Institution of Oceanography delegation at COP21. They have both been studying climate change policy issues and have some insightful experiences to share with us about what happened in Paris and their current research. Shayla Ragamoff, whose parents immigrated to 
to the U.S. from Azerbaijan, recently completed her MA degree in international affairs, specializing in international environmental policy and Latin America. She has completed internships with the International Crisis Group in Tbilisi, Georgia, as well as with Qualcomm's Wireless Research, I'm sorry, Wireless Reach Initiative, um, which brings wireless technologies to underserved communities globally. Last summer, Shayla spent time in the Amazon in Brazil, where she worked on carbon credit project in, with the Rainforest Standard. At COP21, as part of the UC San Diego Scripps Institution of Oceanography delegation, she helped to advocate for the inclusion of oceans in the Paris Agreement. Joaquin Vallejo is pursuing a master's degree in international affairs, specializing in international environmental policy and the Latin American region. Last year, he worked as a policy fellow at the World Wildlife Fund Project, Amazon Vision, Protected Areas, as natural solutions to climate change. In this role, he negotiated a declaration on the role of the protected areas in the fight against climate change, which 19 Latin American countries adopted and presented at Paris, at, the, um, at Paris in the conference in D.C. At COP21, Joaquin supported the World Wildlife Fund as well as the Scripps Institution of Oceanography delegation and also helped to dealt to advocate for the role of oceans to be included in the new climate change agreement. At the School of Global Policy and Strategy, Joaquin is, the de is a Dean's Fellow and serves as a President of the Pacific International Affairs Student Organization and Co-Director of the Environmental Policy and Business Forum. Please join us in welcoming them. Well, Thank you very much, and it's a great pleasure to be here, and that's an overly kind introduction. A lot of people have been working on ways to improve governance of the climate change problem because the evidence that the problem is severe keeps growing, but the, but the action to do something about it, frankly, has been extremely slow. You mentioned that I um, started going to these meetings in the late 1980s when I was a graduate student at MIT. I went to every single negotiation leading up to the signature of the Framework Convention on Climate Change. And then I went to the first conference of the parties, which is the annual get-together of the countries that are formerly members of the convention, which was held in Berlin in 1995. And then I went to COP2. This last meeting in Paris was COP21, so this gives you a sense of the length of time that people have been at this. I went to COP2 in Geneva, um, and then I stopped going to these COPs, and I never went to a COP until the one in Paris. And... Um, I went to Paris because I expected that the Paris process was going to be really different and potentially effective. And that's um, more or less, I think, what happened. I want to try and share with you tonight my, my views as to why Paris is different and, and um, what we should look for in the future, what all of you should look for in the future. I mean, one of the reasons it was different is it's the first time in 18 years that countries have gone to a major meeting on climate change and not left angry at each other, but they actually left with an agreement, um, which is an accomplishment because, you know, international law, people are often worried about the strength of international law. You know, we've got folks in this country who are worried about the black helicopters of the UN, none of which have been spotted as far as I can tell. Um, they're worried about law being overly effective, but the reality is that international law is a very weak mechanism. It's based on cooperation and confidence. And so getting an agreement and starting to make progress on a problem is how you get going. And uh, Paris, in this sense, has really been, a, a, in that sense, has been a very big deal. I, I want to just try and say three things today. 
first, uh, before we can talk about all the things that are going right in, in the Paris process, we have to have some sense of what's gone wrong for the last 25 years because there's really no evidence in the data that all these international cooperative efforts have actually had much impact on behavior, on emissions. When you look at the emissions data, they keep going up. When you do counterfactual analysis, you try and understand whether countries' behavior would have changed as a result of not having an international agreement and so on. You, you really see no impact whatsoever, the agreement. So why is it that we could spend 25 years, smart people going to meetings, cop after cop after cop, and getting basically nothing done? And I think the reason is that the forum that they've been working in inside the United Nations has a lot of tremendous strengths. The UN framework is very important for establishing legitimacy and global participation. All that's great. But one of the problems with the UN framework is that it puts all countries together. And uh, when you negotiate legally binding agreements inside the United Nations framework, there are very, very strong incentives to, to adopt an agreement that is the least common or the least, I mean, sorry, the least ambitious agreement conceivable. And that's basically what's happened is we've, been, we've had professional diplomats who are very attentive to the question of whether the agreements they're going to negotiate their countries can actually comply with that have been negotiating in a forum where every country has a voice and therefore the contracting problem, if you like, is exceptionally complex. The transaction costs are astronomical. And it's not surprising, frankly, that we've either had gridlock or we've had agreements like the Kyoto Protocol that look like you're doing something on paper, but in reality they don't have any impact on behavior. You can see this actually by looking at the Kyoto Protocol itself and and, and looking at the impact, that this, the potential impact the protocol has had on emissions. So this chart shows, um, in the left bar, the green bar, shows the fraction of world emissions that were, were, were covered by the original Kyoto Protocol, signed in 1997 in Kyoto, Japan. By that original protocol, there's a list of countries at the back of it that says these 38 countries have to cut their emissions. It was all the industrialized countries of the world. You might say, well, that's not bad, 59%, 60% of world emissions. It's not all countries. The developing countries are not included. But at least it's a start. And then you look in the middle bar, the blue bar. These are the, this is the fraction of world emissions in the year 2010, which was the midpoint of the Kyoto compliance period. This is the fraction of world emissions that were covered by the countries that were still members of the Kyoto Protocol. The United States famously did not uh, join the Kyoto Protocol. We actually signed, but then unsigned, uh, the Kyoto Protocol, in part because the George W. Bush administration found climate change policy through the UN toxic, and mostly, frankly, because there was no scenario by which the United States could actually comply with its Kyoto obligation. So the U.S. actually had no choice but to withdraw from the Kyoto Protocol or, leave, or avoid ratifying it. And the rest of the emissions in the world, China, India, other emerging economies, grew. And so by the time Kyoto was in full force, you'd ha you recovered 23% of world emissions. And then the right-hand bar, the red bar, shows the fraction of world emissions uh, covered under Kyoto when the treaty was formally extended. A few years ago at a COP in Doha, there was the opportunity for countries to re-up, to, to sign on for an extension of their Kyoto obligations past the year 2012 up to the year 2020. The Japanese said goodbye. The Japanese industry hated the Kyoto Protocol because there was no easy way for Japan to comply. So the main way that Japan complied was by buying credits from developing countries because there was a mechanism where you could buy credits. And it's actually a lot of work to suggest that many of those credits were bogus, but be that as it may, they were credits. And so the Japanese found themselves subsidizing the purchase of credits from China, their main economic competitor. And so you can imagine the Japanese industry, the moment there was a meeting about the Kyoto Protocol that wasn't held on Japanese soil, they were out of there. 
And really only the European Union signed up to, con- to extend their obligations to Kyoto. So then you have only 13% of world emissions covered by this agreement. So this is just an illustration of the problems that have beset the international negotiations over the last 20, 25 years, especially inside this framework where all countries are participating, at least sitting around the table, where the obligations are organized around targets and timetables for emissions, and they're legally, uh, legally binding. The other thing that's happened over the last 20, 25 years that frankly has made the the climate change problem harder to solve is that globalization has changed the profile of emissions. So this chart shows you the world's emissions uh, divided into four countries, highly industrialized countries shown on the top in the blue bar, the upper middle income countries, China, uh, other emerging uh, economies, the lower middle income countries, and the least industrialized countries in the very bottom there. And what you see in each of these, these bars or bands is the difference between two different accounting systems. So the territory-based accounting systems are the ones that are most widely used right now. And to make a complicated story short, when we buy a ton of steel that's been manufactured in China, the emissions associated with producing that steel are charged to China because all of the major emission statistics being used right now are territorial in nature. They, they attribute the, the emissions to the territory on the planet where those emissions happened. But, of course, the global warming problem is caused by pollutants that are globally mixed. And so, frankly, if you're worried about global warming, you don't care where the emissions come from. What you care is that the emissions go down. The dotted lines show a new, and there's several data sets now out on this, the dotted lines show a new way of measuring emissions, which is based on consumption. So that ton of steel that we buy from China, the emissions associated with that ton should really be charged to the United States, and not to the Chinese. What's interesting here is that the size of these bands has gone up over time. So with globalization of the economy, we've seen a a huge increase in the amount of emissions that are embodied in the products that trade uh, trade internationally. Uh, when When transportation was very expensive and when logistics were difficult, the only products that really moved in large volume internationally were higher value products. But because of globalization, we've seen a lot of other products that you wouldn't have normally thought would be moving around globally, cement, um, steel, uh, sections of the Bay Bridge were made in Asia and then barged across the Pacific and so on. And this has really made the climate problem in some sense harder to solve. Globalization overall is great news because it, among other things, makes it possible to move the best technologies through markets anywhere in the world very, very quickly. And when I travel, I like to visit power plants and refineries and things like that. And what's interesting is you can go to the most remote corner of Brazil or go to a power plant uh, almost anywhere, and you'll see international nameplates now in a way that you did not in the middle 1990s. So all that's awesome. But the side effect of globalization is the countries now understand to a to a much greater degree, the benefits of avoiding regulation because the benefits in the form of lower energy costs and therefore greater economic competitiveness, those benefits are now much more tangible in a way that they weren't, that they weren't before. We have essentially ignored that problem in climate change negotiations, and that's ironically made the problem much harder harder to solve. Paris has not fixed all of these problems, but what Paris has done is created a new new way of negotiating international commitments that's much less dependent upon binding commitments. So there's been in the press a lot of discussion about how the Paris Agreement is binding, and under some interpretations that's true. But when you look at the full decision that came out of Paris, to me what's interesting is somebody studies international law pretty carefully, is that the binding parts of the agreement 
are the ones that don't say very much. And the non-binding parts of the agreement are much larger, much more detailed, and frankly are the game plan. That's what people are going to be working on over the next, um, uh, the next few, few, um, uh, few years and decades to come. In my mind, the biggest shift in Paris is we've gone from a system, as in the Kyoto Protocol, where countries came together and negotiated centralized, so-called top-down emission targets and timetables, to a new system where countries nominate their own commitments. They come to the negotiation and they say, here's what I'm going to do. Here's my pledge. That pledge in the jargon is known as an intended nationally determined contribution because no simple idea can be left alone by a bureaucracy and, and uh, escape a complicated name. Um, so these INDCs are what countries were filing in the year or so before Paris, mostly, frankly, in the last few months in advance of Paris. And they vary enormously in quality and so on. But the concept here is that you start by having countries get the flexibility to nominate what they're going to do, and then cooperation emerges bottom-up, if you like, through periodic review and then adjustment of these pledges and so on. And the last thing uh, that happened in Paris is that while this was a global agreement, the agreement conspicuously allows, in fact, encourages smaller groups of countries, clubs, if you like, clubs of countries to go off and do things in small groups. So you have clubs of countries right now that are working on soot here at uh, Scripps Institution of Oceanography and at UCSD Upper Campus. We have terrific work that's going on 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 soot and other so-called short-lived climate pollutants that has demonstrated they actually have a huge impact on on the climate problem. So you have small groups of countries working on soot. You have Norway has created a club that's working on slowing deforestation in the Amazon, Indonesia, and a few other countries. So you have all these different smaller activities by smaller groups of countries where it's easier to organize the deal than in these large uh, global settings. So that's what's happened in Paris, and I think that's a big deal. This was more or less the logic that I tried to lay out in the book um, uh, that you mentioned in the introduction, The Global Warming Gridlock. I'm not the only person talking about this, but it's taken a long time to get these new ideas into practice, in part because back in the early 1990s, the most successful international agreement on the planet, international environmental agreement on the planet, was the agreement on the ozone layer. And the architects of what became the Framework Convention on Climate Change and the Kyoto Protocol more or less took the ozone agreement off the shelf and tried to do something similar here. And the lesson that, that has folks have been slow to learn is that what was relatively easy in ozone, because we're dealing with a limited number of pollutants and the cost was not very large, the lessons to be learned from ozone don't apply simply to the case of climate. And it really took the failure of countries in 2009 in Copenhagen. The, one of these COPs was held in Copenhagen. was designed to create the successor agreement to the Kyoto Protocol. When the Copenhagen conference ended in failure and disarray, that kind of broke open the space and, and, and created opportunities for new ideas. And these are the ideas that have come into play, and I think they're very encouraging. The second thing I want to say is, while I'm excited about this, frankly, because it was hard to get more depressed about the prospects for international cooperation, so I guess being thrilled is a relative concept. While I'm excited about this, one thing I'm concerned about is that the this new strategy has emerged as a default. It's emerged after people have tried everything else and it hasn't worked, and so they're kind of doing this, and some folks, including the French government, are doing this because this is an explicit part of a strategy for how you govern complex global problems like this. But frankly, most countries are doing this because it's a default, and that's a problem, especially when we recognize that we got to agreement in Paris by basically deferring agreement on really, really hard things. So Paris did a handful of things that were very important. 
It reinstated confidence in the process because we actually got to yes. It blessed this pledge and review, this bottom-up process. It created some bold goals like stopping global warming at less than 2 degrees or ideally more than uh, uh, more or less than 2 degrees. I'll talk a little bit about that in a second. But what it didn't do was create a system by which countries are actually going to generate useful pledges. The pledges vary enormously in quality, and we've got to fix that problem because some of the pledges have no connection to any reality, and other pledges, the Chinese pledge, for example, are are pretty carefully thought-out documents and are a real revelation of what the country thinks it's willing and able to do. So you've got to create both higher-quality pledges for this new system to work as well as a mechanism for reviewing and assessing those pledges over time. And all of that has been deferred now to the after-Paris process, after-Paris period, when, frankly, the, the, the prospects for agreement are, are, are dimmer because there's no conspicuous deadline. When you have all your heads of state showing up at a big meeting and the French government wants it to be successful and they've put their entire diplomatic resources behind the activity, you get to yes. Now there's really no kind of obvious set of deadlines and so on, and that's a significant problem. To me, one of the things that's interesting is that when you look closely at the pledges that have been made right now, what you see is that most countries in the world are not making pledges about actions they're going to take because they're worried about climate change. Most of them are making pledges because they're worried about other things that happen to correlate partially with climate change. So this is a slide from the latest IPCC report showing that there is a relationship between scenarios when you look at at emissions where there's no climate policy and emissions when there's a stringent climate policy for black carbon, soot on the left side, for sulfur dioxide and aerosol uh, pollutant that actually cools the climate. And so there's a relationship between the two. And uh, uh, Professor Ramanathan and I have an article that just came out in the last few days in Foreign Affairs, which is looking at actually both of these aerosol pollutants and their impact on rainfall, which is a distinct part of the climate change problem. So there are relationships between these two, but I think we have to recognize that for most countries, most of the action is in identifying parts of the climate problem that much more closely link to local interests. The Chinese are interested in doing something about air pollution and black carbon, not because it contributes to less global warming globally, but because it helps clean up toxic cities. And the same is true in the Indian case, and the same is true, frankly, across the emerging economies in particular. The third thing I want to say and and then end on is I think we in the university world have an obligation also to help the diplomatic world understand what goals are realistic. Because we've spent so long getting very little done on climate policy, we have basically committed the world to a substantial amount of uh, climate warming. This is why initiatives such as the uh, new Herberg Center down at Scripps is going to be will be so important, because we, we have to get ready for the inevitable substantial amounts of climate warming. And I think the diplomatic process, frankly, is is lagging far behind, partly because. There are strong diplomatic incentives for countries to look like they're doing bold things and making bold collective goals when none of them are individually responsible for actually delivering on those, goal, on those goals. And one of the ways you see this most conspicuously is in this question of two degrees of warming. This is a slide drawn from the, from the database put together for the last IPCC report, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Report. It's actually a database and slide pulled together by different groups and colleagues of mine at, at Cicero. This shows all of the published scenarios for future emissions of greenhouse gases, which are shown in the red here, um, in so-called business-as-usual scenarios. So these are scenarios where you tell the model, assume the countries aren't going to do a lot more with climate policy, what happens? It turns out 
lot of bad things happen. The black lines show actual emissions, and until very recently, actual emissions have been tracking at the highest or above the highest level projections for future emissions. And so that's worrisome that our worst-case scenario models might, in fact, not even be showing the worst case. This next um, set of blue lines show, same database, all published scenarios that have a better-than-even chance of stopping global warming at 2 degrees. Um, Huge reduction in emissions. Extremely difficult to do. And if you compare these trajectories with the red trajectories, really the job involved is massive, and in some sense, um, time is already up. Um, Charlie Kennel and I, former director of Scripps, wrote a paper in Nature um, in uh, October of 2014 saying basically two degrees was an impossible uh, goal to meet, and we ought to rethink the goal, both because it's impossible to meet and because, frankly, measuring globally averaged uh, surface temperature is the wrong way to measure the full stress that humans are putting on the climate system. I have, for nothing that I've written, received more hate mail than that (laughs) article because people don't want to hear that the goal that everybody's talking about is not feasible. You might say, you might look at that and say, you know, this looks hard, and, 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 but you know, there seem to be some scenarios that, that actually might still be feasible. So you can look at these blue scenarios here, and what I'm going to do is pull out just the scenarios that involve delay in emissions cuts that still stop warming at 2 degrees. So some of the models actually can compute this way. And it looks like you know if we mess around, do a little bit here and there, and then we get really serious, um, we can still stop warming at 2 degrees. And it is this cluster of very small scenarios that is the basis of essentially everybody looking at the last IPCC report and saying, you know what? The IPCC says this is still feasible given the current trajectories. I believe this is a complete and utter fantasy. The rate at which emissions reduce are reduced during the steep reduction period starting about 2025 and 2030 is faster than the rate of emissions reductions by factor of two that the that any large industrial economy has seen from a big energy policy program. And the the high watermark here is France. During its rapid nuclearization, the French economy saw emissions reduced by, I think, about 4% per year. These scenarios involve much greater. So imagine the entire planet reducing its emissions at rates twice what one country with a crash program, strong state institutions, and unlimited budgets was able to do. That seems completely crazy to me. Even crazier, though, um, is this role for net negative emissions? So all the models that that make this assum- that make this assumption we can still stop warming at two degrees, these models are based on the idea that um, there's a new magical technology that's going to emerge. It's called bioenergy carbon capture and storage. And it's magical because it involves growing biomass, so pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, burning the biomass in a power plant, generating electricity, which is what people want, and then capturing the carbon and storing it underground so it actually has net negative emissions. And... um, these models deploy massive amounts of bioenergy, carbon capture, and storage. The models by structure actually love a technology like that because it allows them, like a kind of drunk gambler in Vegas, to take all the chips and move them on one square and just hope it's all going to work out. There's one problem, which is that none of these plants actually exist, and nobody that I know who's serious about deploying billions of dollars of capital, so adult business people, um, see any scenario right now by which you would actually start to deploy and learn how to do bioenergy carbon capture and storage at a scale necessary here, let alone the ecological consequences of growing that much biomass and using it for generating electricity. Um, There's a big role for technology. 
clearly we're going to need a lot of technological solutions. To me, one of the most encouraging things in Paris, in addition to the new structure, was on day one of the meeting you had a series of announcements about big new commitments to energy technology R&D, both at the governmental level and uh, the private sector. Bill Gates has been very much in the news. Um, these are real. Not all governments are going to be able to double their public sector R&D spend, energy-related R&D spending, but a lot are trying now. And the private sector commitment is uh, seems to be moving in that direction. And you can imagine it's not going to happen immediately, but you can imagine a truly massive uh, technological investment here. And I think that's going to be necessary, not just because you need to get from the red lines to the blue lines through new technology, but be because new technologies make the political problems easier to solve. They make the concerns about competitiveness and so on uh, much, much easier to manage. So this is the last slide I'll show, which is I think everybody ought to have a checklist for what they expect to see after Paris and what they're going to try and make happen. Mine is we need to get serious experimentation from different different strategies at the country level for cutting emissions so we can learn what works and what doesn't work and scale up the ones that are effective. We need to build review mechanisms. This is a pledge and review system where we have highly uneven pledges and no review mechanism. It will not work unless there's an actual review mechanism for that, and that's a very high priority. Um, I think we can, we can look to more integrated commitments and cooperation from these bottom-up demonstrations and from small groups of countries and uh, kind of think about this as, as a bicycle. You pedal a little bit, the bicycle stays upright. You pedal a little bit faster, the bicycle still stays upright. And that's the way we've built confidence and effective international institutions in other areas of international cooperation like trade. And we'll have to do something similar here in the case of climate. And I think as countries figure out what works mostly experimenting in small groups rather than big groups because the big groups are unwieldy, they're going to have to take on this problem of trade. We're going to have to have border measures, border adjustments, so that countries do not gain a competitive advantage, possibly a large one, by staying outside the regulatory system. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for attending, everyone. Thank you to UCSD for putting on the event. And of course, thanks to Professor Victor for his um, valued insights on uh, beyond the Paris Agreement. My name is Shayla Ragamov. I'm a recent graduate from the School of Global Policy and Security here at UCSD. And what I'm going to do is tell you what I did at COP21 and share with you a couple of insights um, that I acquired having been at the 21st Conference of the Parties. So I was able to participate at COP21 by assisting the delegation of Scripps Institute of Oceanography, and I helped manage their booth advocating for the importance of ocean research and science as it pertains to climate change. Um, I spoke to an endless stream of delegates who would walk by our booth, and I would talk to them about basic ocean science facts, and I would make sure to emphasize the importance of having the ocean be included in the actual text agreement, um, especially to the delegates who are from nations with uh, coastlines and island nations. And I would talk to them about what's in store for them going into the future um, in terms of adaptation and how they can better prepare if they turn their attention to the role the ocean plays in climate change. So um, three basic facts I just want to share with you in case you don't know about ocean science um, and how climate change affects the oceans. There are three main stressors. One, you have acidification, which is a direct effect of the ocean absorbing CO2, carbon dioxide, out of the atmosphere. And in the past 250 years, you have about 30% of the anthropogenic 
um, emissions being absorbed into the ocean. And this has a direct effect on the chemical composition of the ocean. It lowers the pH and it causes acidification. Um, the second stress, you have warming, and that's the one we all know um, the most and hear the most about. And what this does, it actually puts into question the role of the ocean going into the future with its capacity to continue absorbing as much carbon dioxide as it is now. Because as the ocean warms, this capacity decreases. The third stressor is deoxygenation. So similar to acidification, it's a chemical reaction that happens from the uptake of carbon dioxide into the ocean. What was interesting, which um, was that at COP21, I was able to see this kind of roller coaster ride of how the oceans were included included in in the actual text agreement um, over the course of the two weeks of the summit. At one point, it was moved out of the introductory body of the agreement and placed into an article. It was slightly rephrased, but then it was put back. And eventually, it was it's on the first page at the bottom of the Paris Agreement uh, in this quote in this quote here. And it's we were celebrating that the fact that the single word ocean was at least included in in this um, milestone agreement. And um, the problem here is that there's no political representation of the ocean, and that's why it's so hard to fight for um, putting in uh, research and development and capacity building to incorporate ocean science into climate change mitigation and adaptation. And um, if we don't know what's going on, we don't really know what to do about it, right? So understanding the ocean gives insight to future mitigation, and it's up, up to institutions like Scripps to lead the way and thankfully be at these events to advocate for it. So now I'd like to share with you two insights that I gained. So the first is about multi-sector engagement. It was definitely the first thing I noticed when I showed up. This was my first COP, um, and it was massive. And it was kind of strange to me because most of the negotiations were going on behind closed doors. And I was wondering, well, why is the summit so huge outside of the negotiation space? And what it is is a massive multi-sector engagement that occurs alongside the negotiation process. This, with this recent COP, they've been increasing in size since COP1, and, and with COP21, you had about 40,000 delegates and various other stakeholders um, and I guarantee you that if it weren't for a cap on capacity, this event would have been much more massive. And it just goes to show that there's no other formal place where these sorts of uh, multi-sector um, stakeholders can come and coordinate on how to plan their attack on how to address climate change. Um, it's interesting because when you read the formal agreement itself, the, the agreement doesn't reflect this reality, and it goes to show the evidence of this decentralization process of climate change action. And um, it makes you wonder who's really getting things done and who's really making moves. And going forward, it's going to be interesting to see how COP21 ends up embracing this engagement and helps to better facilitate these these um, outside activities that happen alongside the negotiations themselves and the meetings themselves of, of government officials. The second insight I'd like to share has to do with communication um, surrounding the issue with communication, because this is something that was really illuminated for me when I was at COP21. And to illustrate this struggle, um, I'm going to talk to you about two side events that I attended. Um, the first was a side event held at the actual COP event 
held by the IPCC, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and it was, it was titled From Science to Solutions, Uses and Strategies of IPCC Communications for, for a Climate-Changing World. Now, um, these are, the IPCC is the formal body that's in charge with providing the UNFCCC with policy choices based on the most advanced climate science assessment, but they have the hardest job because in order to produce um, an assessment report, they go under the most scrutinizing review process you can imagine. You have to have every government official approving every single word and comma in these reports that come out. So as a result, what you get are these very um, vague uh, policy analysis documents, and this vagueness is actually reflected in the Paris Agreement. There's no uh, solid plan of action. And, um, and you know, even with the side event that they put on, the, the issue that they were trying to address with their side event had to do with how they could create more actionable information for actors again, outside of the governmental sphere. Um, they were hoping to create or they were looking to see whether they should start producing more publications that people outside of the governmental sphere can really take and incorporate into their sector or their industry. So the official communication system not doing such a good job and struggling. On the other side of the spectrum, you have Arnold Schwarzenegger, who uh, gave a speech at Sciences Po, a university, famous university in Paris, and he's doing a climate change communication campaign Okay, and he so so here you have a professional communicator talking about climate change in a non-climate way. What he was saying, and he, he was really entertaining. He was totally being himself, and he was saying, "Look, guys, forget about sea ice melting. Forget about sea level rise. Or, I'm sorry, um, ice sheets melting. Forget about sea level rise. What we need to talk about is an increase in lung cancer in the United States and air quality and pollution in the United States. And, and we gotta, we got to talk about issues that are going to bring on board uh, bipartisan support so we can really get the ball rolling here. And, um, you know, if, it, it makes you wonder which organization is going to do the job in leading the communication of climate change and the urgency and the need to act. Is it going to come from civil society? Is it going to come from the formal body, the IPCC? Or is it going to come from government officials, entertainers? Um, yeah, so the last slide I'm going to share with you, I think just kind of sums up the message I'm trying to send. This is an installation art piece that was done in a famous square in Paris. And this was going on during the two-week summit. Um, it is 80 tons of ice that was shipped from Greenland and placed in the formation of a clock to help communicate the urgency and the necessity to um, perceive that climate change is actually happening. And, and exactly opposite of what Arnold was saying, where he was saying, forget about the polar bears, we need to talk about what's going on in our backyard. These, it was a partnership between an Icelandic Danish artist and a professor of geology. They came together and they were going to do the exact opposite. They wanted to bring the problem to Paris so that we can see tangibly what is actually going on to help shift our perception to see um, if, that's, if that's what it takes to get people to start acting. And so, um, whereas I think that the Paris Agreement was a milestone because you finally have successfully officials coming together and recognizing formally and officially that action must be taken, the real question is um, how that action is going to be carried through into the future. Thank you.
My name is Joaquin Vallejo. Thank you very much for the introduction as well. I am going to talk to you about my experience at COP21 and my experience basically lobbying and advocating for the role of protected areas in addressing climate change. To give you a little background uh, about the problem, um, protected areas are, are important. That was the key message that we were trying to convey. Uh, I was there also with a delegation uh, of Scripps, but also representing the World Wildlife Fund, specifically the Living Amazon Initiative that tries to um, encourage governments to adopt climate change policies that involve protected areas and also um, involve climate change criteria in their protected area management. So for a little bit of background, protected areas store about 15% of the planet's terrestrial carbon. They also play a key role in avoiding emissions from deforestation, land use change, and forest degradation, which is actually the second largest uh, source of carbon emissions after energy, and that's pretty important. There's very interesting examples of, of how they work. There's evidence being gathered uh, in terms of how protected areas avoid deforestation, this is some of uh, my own research. Um, the um, red dots that you see are forest areas that were lost between 2000 and 2014. The lighter green are tropical rainforests, and the darker green are actually those rainforests that are protected. Um, this is basically a visual aid for a research that I've been working on, and that's continuing in, in this quarter as well. And it hints us that there's a very good role that a very important role that protected areas play in in reducing deforestation and avoiding emissions um, there's also a very interesting relationship between protected areas and adaptation to climate change. Um, they provide a set of ecosystem services that help communities, societies, and economies to adapt and I think there's a very interesting parallel here between terrestrial protected areas and oceans as well. And the political problem is very similar. How to take this and make it worthwhile for governments to act on these kinds of things is a challenge because these are dynamics that are not fully understood. And the role of protected areas, as well as the role of oceans, is not only uh, in terms of mitigation of climate change and absorbing carbon emissions, but also helping the world adapt to climate change. And that's a challenge to convey to policymakers. So what was my role there? Um, this came from my experience during last summer. I was working with the WWF as a policy fellow for a project called Protected Areas, Natural Solutions to Climate Change. Our main success um, during last summer was that we got now 19. That, that was Then it was 18, but now Argentina has finally signed this declaration. 19 Latin American countries adopted a declaration to recognize the role of protected areas in addressing climate change, and, and that happened in August, and that declaration was also presented during the COP. We played a big role in terms of um, conveying this message to governments. Some of them included protected areas in their INDCs, their national contributions that were mentioned earlier, and some others that did not have the time to do it because the processes are very long, are in the process of doing so right now. Um, it's a very long process, it's a very slow process, but this is where we're at right now. And this is basically a photo of what we were doing, that's uh, Annalise Vergara in the middle from WWF, she's my colleague. 
and that Francisco Prieto, he's the director of biodiversity for Ecuador, and Annalise is holding the declaration. And basically my job there was to run around with the declaration, finding the delegates from Latin American countries, reminding them that their governments had signed this declaration, because most of the times it wasn't even the same government official who was at the meeting in Lima, that the one that was at the meeting in Paris. Um, that was that was a lot of what I was doing there. Um, also, we tried to to get other regions and other countries on board these kinds of initiatives. So, what we did for that was several of different activities. So, um, as I mentioned, the declaration, and also with WWF, we basically organized a side event and a press conference um, around this issue, trying to, um, to advocate for the role of protected areas in climate change. Um, this is the side event that we had, that Francisco Julia Miranda is the Biodiversity Director for Colombia, and on the right is Nigel Dudley. He is a researcher that basically is one of the foremost researchers advocating for protected areas in, in fighting climate change. Uh, this raised a lot of interest from different regions. There were uh, delegates from uh, countries in Central Africa, in Southeast Asia, approaching us, saying, "We want to do this. Uh, we want to do similar things in my region." And there was a lot of interchange between delegates and between civil society and national delegates. And we hope that in the future, this will be an effort that will be replicated elsewhere. Um, this is the press conference that we had. We, we had uh, both uh, on this side, we have the two people that I mentioned before, and we try to have uh, high-level people there as well. That's Yolanda Cacabatze. She's the worldwide president of WWF, and Braulio de Sousa Santos, who's the executive secretary of the Bio, uh, Convention on Biological Diversity. Um, we had a few journalists show up to this event, and, and we kind of got the ball rolling in terms of um, getting the press to care about this issue as well and take it back to their own countries and try to push them to do what they actually committed to through the declaration. So how does this um, translate to action? Well, that's, that's the tricky part, as always. Um, some countries in the region have already started taking into account these lessons and, and implementing these kinds of of, of projects that interrelate protected areas with their climate change uh, um, planning. Also, uh, Shayla already mentioned some of the relevant content in the Paris Agreement. It's actually a very similar effort that Scripps and, and WDF were doing. And there is some relevant content in the agreement. The first one in the preamble, um, Shayla has already mentioned. Um, and then in Article 5, you can see that there's also a bit of mention of protecting ecosystems, prote protecting carbon sinks. Um, it's important to note here the language. It's a very um, vague language. Uh, these are this is one of the examples where the important things that have to be done are presented in a very vague way and a very non-binding way. Parties should, parties are encouraged. So that's that's the kind of thing that that is, I think, very um, characteristic of international law. You don't want a very high level of bindingness if you want every single country in the world to sign into an agreement. So is this a success or not? Is the glass half full or half empty? I think, given the circumstances, this is, sorry, 
this is um, this is good news in my opinion. This sets the foundations for future efforts that integrate prime, uh, protected areas in climate change planning. They can be linked to um, to things that are already within the convention in terms of means of implementation, programs to reduce emission from deforestation and forest degradation, and other similar initiatives. So I'm going to conclude with a few, a few remarks and insights. So what are the lessons learned from this? Uh, well, in my experience, um, not only attending Paris, but being involved with the World Wildlife Fund since last summer um, helped me decide what I want to do my research on. Is basically, do protected areas work at a global level? Because um, the demand for commodities such as soybean, um, beef, or um, uh, palm oil, for example, is not something that is decreasing necessarily, and it has to come from somewhere. So is there leakage um, in, this, in this situation? Is deforestation being avoided in Brazil going to Central Africa or Indonesia? This is what I want to try to find out. And why to uh, further help advocate for this as a good idea, a cost-effective way to mitigate emissions, a way in which uh, even developing countries can contribute a lot to do um, in terms of avoiding emissions and preventing climate change. So I learned many things about the, uh, from the COP21 experience. Uh, it was incredible to me how everyone involved in the climate bubble is gathered in a single place. I actually run into many people that I had met during my time working for the British government on the issue, people that I knew from Ecuador, where I'm from as well, who were dealing with the issue. And this is literally a place and a time where connections are made and, and people get together and, and a lot of synergy is achieved by bringing actors together. So even though it's, it's probably soft law, there's a lot to be done. Actually, there's huge challenges that remain, um, which uh, not least is the recent decision by the Supreme Court of delaying the, client, the clean power plan, uh, President Obama's clean power plan. Uh, there's a lot of uncertainty of, about the commitments, but I think overall um, Paris was good news for the fight against climate change, and it sets the foundations to do smaller things that might have a greater impact. So as I said before, the challenges remain, how to quantify the contribution of protected areas, how to convince policymakers to include protected areas in their climate change planning, and finally, at an international level, how to integrate this with other efforts that are being made elsewhere, for example, in the Convention for Biological Diversity, in, within UNFCCC, in the Sustainable Development Goals that were adopted by the UN in September, and many others. Uh, so this is how we're going into the future, and we'll see what happens after this. Thank you very much for your attention.